You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one in the seats in front of you. You'll find Mark chapter 9 on page 845. And we continue our study this morning with a, a topic that comes to the surface, and it's the topic of status. The, the idea in pursuit of status is something that we become very familiar with in our earliest days. In fact, in our childhood, we are reminded of the importance between the haves and the have-nots. Just, just walk into one of the Sunday school classrooms on a Sunday and watch the toddlers, and they are blessed with a plethora of toys around them. But they survey the toddlers in the rest of the room, and if there's one toy that they think would make them better in their status, they are willing to do anything to get that. And it doesn't stop in our toddler years. We continue that in our school age years as we look around and we see what status is the most popular in our school. And maybe in some schools it's becoming a a jock or an athlete. And so people are willing to do whatever it takes to be known with the status of being a jock. It continues with relationships. Those who have relationships seem to be having a better status than those who are not. And so kids are tempted to compromise their standards and their convictions. They're tempted to compromise the statterns of what they should be looking at for a relationship with a member of the opposite sex just so they can have a status of relationship. We see that continue as students get older and all of a sudden the status Uh, Their status is identified by what school they get accepted to or what degree they're pursuing or what job gives them an opportunity to be successful. We see statuses in cars. In fact, this last week I was driving out to my hometown of Blue Springs, which is on the Missouri side. And I remember growing up how much we, we thought of Johnson Countyites. I remember we thought that you guys would drown if it rained because your noses were so stuck up in the air. That everybody over here in Johnson County had leather, leather jackets and drove uh, Mercedes Benz. And so I was driving and thinking, what are these Missouri tag people thinking of my Joko tag license plate? I have a 2014 Honda Accord. It's a wonderful car. But I was driving next to a 2021 Honda Accord Sport. It has daylight, day, day, day running lamps. The LED ones, you know, that stay on all day. Mine doesn't. I know that the sport has a paddle shifter. Mine doesn't. And I'm sitting there thinking, God, why why can't I have that? And then I arrived at the golf course because I was was golfing with my dad, which, by the way, 75 years old, he had a 300-yard drive. That is ridiculous. Okay, why couldn't you have passed on that gene to me? (laughs) I digress, but I share with you that I'm watching the guys put out their golf bags and have their, their clubs, and I was just given a set of clubs uh, as a, a th- congratulations for graduating, and was looking at my golf bag and saying, okay, is that golf bag better than mine? Are those clubs better than mine? And this quest for status is so subtle, but it's so strong. It can potentially be a quest of idolatry, can't it? Friends, what is idolatry? Idolatry is anything in our lives that competes for a place that is rightfully reserved for God alone. 
And friends, I would say that you and I share this same element, and that is we have quests for status that are less than the status that God expects of us and that he offers to us. And the disciples were no different. Let me read this passage, and then we will hopefully be able to see how God provides the disciples and us with a solution for our misguided pursuit of status. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, they went on from there, Jesus and the 12 disciples, and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what are you, were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to uh, do so with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, for it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Beloved, I submit to you, this is an amazing passage. It is complicated. It is complex. But it is extremely relevant. And if you will join me in opening our hearts with humility, this will be more than an exercise of religion. It is an opportunity for relationship. Look at the big idea in your notes. Your motives and measures of status are opportunities to evaluate the authenticity of your faith. Number one, we need to exchange our expectations of status. We need to exchange our expectations of status. Mark reminds us, and since we've been away from Mark for two weeks, let's look at what details Mark includes to understand what the context is. It says in verse 30, they went out from there and passed through Galilee. It says down in verse 33 that they arrived at Capernaum. 
So remember that Jesus and his disciples were on the northernmost area of Israel. It's the area known as the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's an area that had great pagan and Gentile influence. And in that place, Jesus had asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he said, who do you say that I am? And then Peter, remember, stood up and said, you are the Christ, you are Messiah, you are the epicenter of redemptive history. And Jesus affirmed that, but he also rebuked them. And then shortly after that, Jesus had invited three disciples, Peter, James, and John, to go up to what we believe to be Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in all of Israel. And on that mountain, Jesus was transfigured. His face and his clothes shone bright white. And not only that, but on this mountain, Moses himself and Elijah were there talking about where Jesus was headed, talking about how prophecies were being fulfilled. And when Jesus came down from the mountain, there were residuals because when the crowd came up, the people were amazed just at his appearance. And then remember, a father had brought his son to be healed by Jesus, to have the demon cast out. And Jesus did that and then taught the disciples and the crowd the importance of an active faith. And so that is all that has been going on. And now the disciples are moving back down to their base camp, verse 33, in Capernaum. And Jesus does not want anyone else to be with them. And the reason for that is he is going to teach the disciples something that was intended to manage their expectations. Look at verse 31. It says, the Son of Man. Would you underline that for me? Would you circle that? Because for us, we see Son of Man and we think, okay, Son of God. We think, okay, this is the second person of the Trinity, but this was the most referred to title of Jesus to himself in all of the Gospels. And I believe the reason for that is because he was drawing that original audience back to Daniel 7, verse 13. In fact, would you turn back there if you're willing? Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. We have turned here many times through our study of the gospel of Mark, but let's do it once again because it says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. There is that title. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." The Jews for generations focused on the kingdom aspect of this. The disciples that were surrounding Jesus in this text in Mark chapter 9 focused on the kingdom aspect of the Son of Man. And so that reveals the expectations of the disciples. Expectations are important, aren't they? I have expectations of technology. In fact, this has been convicting to me. I have a a technology that I'm researching that I'd really, really like to get because I think it would make our life better, make us better stewards of technology. But I find myself getting succumbed to the same temptation I had when plasma TVs came out. So I lived in an era where you actually had to stand up to turn the channel. And only about half of you can relate to that. And I remember that if you had a 27-inch square tube, that was like big time. 
And so all of a sudden, you started having these TVs come out that were widescreen, and I thought to myself that maybe I'll be able to watch Star Wars without the black stripes above and below it, so we need a plasma TV. And so I got it, and I remember unboxing it, and this thing was massive, 43 inches. Can you believe it? And I remember plugging in the DVD player and turning on Star Wars and realizing, wait, there's black lines above and below still. What? But it's still clear, so that's okay. But then I realized there's a difference between 1080i and 1080p. And that has been a continual trajectory for me that you think that this technology, you have these expectations that this will be the end-all be-all, but what happened to 1080p? Now it's 4K. What will happen to 4K? It will then be 8K and beyond, and we will always have this expectation that this will be the end-all be-all. This will satisfy, but those are horizontally informed expectations. The disciples themselves actually had vertical expectations, but the horizontal flooded in. We see that at the end back in Mark chapter 9 of verse 32. It says, they did not understand the saying of Jesus And they were afraid to ask him. You know, I just want to camp here for a second. You ever wonder why the disciples were afraid to ask somebody that we understand to be so gentle and compassionate and meek? It's because sometimes leaders have to rebuke. Sometimes leaders need to lean in to misunderstanding. And the disciples were reeling from several of these. Jesus had rebuked Peter and the disciples in Mark chapter 8. Back in Mark chapter 4, Jesus had said, why don't you see and understand? What, basically, what is wrong with you? He had harsh words from time to time to share with the disciples for the expectation of their needle moving. And sometimes that has to happen. Now, that does not leave leaders without a responsibility to evaluate their motives, evaluate their hearts, evaluate the way that they deliver information, but here you see Jesus, the meek and gracious one, leading in a way that the disciples were afraid to ask. Now, what was it that they did not understand? Well, of course that he would be killed. Of course that he would rise from the grave. They had no grid to run that through, but I want you to see a phrase that actually draws our attention back to Daniel 7. Look at what it says in verse 31. It says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands. Now, if you've moved away from Daniel, let me just read to you Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Daniel is revealing that there will be a fourth beast that represents a kingdom. And this kingdom will have multiple horns, and one horn will actually do this. Verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and they shall, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they, the saints, shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. And so for the disciples, this reveals in Mark chapter 9 that they're thinking of Daniel 7, they're thinking of that context, but what they're focused on is what they can get out of the kingdom. I mean, if you not only know the king, but you're actually a close associate of the king, when he sits up his throne, you're probably going to be in a good place. And so the disciples see this and they say, wait a minute, king, kingdom, us, but Jesus is saying, king, kingdom, me. And we see that revealed in verse 33 
When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Isn't that also often what Jesus does? And he might be doing with that, that with you this morning. He can bring a message or a passage to you that starts to prick and prod. But he's doing it because he loves you. And he says to the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Why? For on the way, they had argued with one another who was going to be the greatest. Friends, I'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen and see if you can relate to this at all, that expectations are often exposed when outcomes are revealed. Expectations are often exposed when outcomes are revealed. Don't you see this on the homecoming court? I mean, all of those ladies are smiles in their face oh but then when one of those ladies is called out as the name of the homecoming queen you usually can see on the face of the others where the expectations were and friends that's what jesus is doing here to the disciples listen disciples it's not going to play out like you think it is I'm actually only inaugurating the kingdom. I'm not actually setting it up. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be pain. The Son of Man is actually going to be handed over, just like Daniel 7.25 says. And the disciples are like, wait a minute. We're already setting up who's going to be on what throne. Friends, I would submit to you this, that it all comes back to belief and faith. Here's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. If our ultimate expectation is the glory of Christ, then the details of the outcome will not change the status that is most important to us. I've had times in my life where I had potential meetings where I thought I might be able to lose my job. And it's in those moments as you prepare for that where you are allowed to be able to see from God's perspective where your expectations are. If the result of that meeting is that you lose your job and your life then, as you know it, will be derailed, then guess what? You've had the wrong expectations. If, If the response of the doctor when you're waiting for the results of the test is that you've got cancer and you've only got a little time to live and immediately your faith is destroyed, your expectations have been off. And what Jesus is doing with truth and with grace is reminding the disciples and us that we must exchange our horizontally informed expectations for the glory of Christ. That is what it boils down to. And if for Christ's glory we must face suffering, if for Christ's glory we must face cancer, if for Christ's glory we must lose our job, and we are in a place where it's okay, we are okay with that, glory to God, then we have learned the lesson that Jesus was teaching our disciple, beloved, none of us, I don't think, will ever get there perfectly. So let's learn from these words and this paragraph and these real people that in order to arrive at the ultimate status, we must exchange our expectations of status. Number two, we must also exchange our understanding of pathways of status. And friend, I would submit to you, when the decisions we make in life begin with something other than will this glorify Christ, we are on dangerous ground. Let me say that again. 
when our decisions in life begin with anything before the glory of Christ, then we are on dangerous ground. Friend, if you have an opportunity to change jobs, if you have an opportunity to move, young one, if you have an opportunity to be in a relationship with someone or to express a physical intimacy with them, and the the question that you are asking is anything other than, will this glorify Christ, you are on dangerous ground. And that's what Jesus is revealing as he continues this account with the disciples. It says in verse 35, he sat down. I love that. One scholar says, class is in session. See, when a rabbi sat down, it was time to shut up because he was going to teach. And boy, does he teach. And he said to them, literally in the original language, He switches it up, and it's not in the order in the English, and I think it it misses the emphasis, but it's hard to say because it sounds a little bit like Yoda. So, to honor the great Yoda, I will speak like him. If first anyone would want to be. (laughs) See, the emphasis is on first. And that draws us back to what the disciples were arguing. And I think sometimes when we read this, because we see first, we think that the disciples just wanted to be at the top end of the podium. But actually in the original language, it says you want to be in the upper scale of a range. It doesn't necessarily mean you want the 100% A plus grade. It just means you want to be an A student. And why that's important is because it gives context. And what was going on is the disciples had said, wait a minute, Jesus had just asked three of us to go to the mountain. Wait a minute, one of us had just stood up to say what we all believed, and that is you are the Christ. One of us had been given more busy opportunities. And, and we might look at that and say, boo, hiss, the disciples didn't know and they were such sinners. But we have to understand the whole historical culture. For for Jews in the Middle East, and it's still that way today, but especially in Jesus' day, honor was so important. Status in society was so important. And so I think what this reveals is the disciples are saying, not which one of us is best, but which one of us can say we are in the upper range of the disciples. Now, there was Sin. There was foolishness in this approach, but it was very culturally driven. Friends, there are a lot of pathways to status in America, aren't there? There's the pathway of hard work. I mean, you can work hard and study hard and get degrees from certain institutions that by the very fact that you graduated from there opens doors of opportunities. There's the pathway of the time value of money. How many of us in our 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond wish that we would have invested $100 a month since we were 18? There's also in America just being at the right place at the right time. Maybe you've worked for a long time with the same skill set, with the same position, but you arrive at one company, and for whatever reason, they have found a niche. For whatever reason, they're about to go public. For whatever reason, they're about to sell the company, and you stand to make a lot of money. This is logical. This is a blessing of living in our country, but it is also a curse. Because often we have this influence in our lives when it comes to our pathways to status. 
The disciples longed to be in the upper range. This was culturally driven. This was driven by their society. And Jesus says, if anyone first wants to be, if you want to achieve the upper scale of my disciples, then here's the pathway. He says, you must be last of all and servant of all. Now, I think it's valuable. A good preacher will hopefully explain something and then illustrate it. I was always taught in seminary, you explain, you illustrate, and apply. So I've basically revealed to you my whole approach to preaching. But, But that's what Jesus does here. He explains, you must be last of all, and you must be a servant of all, and that's the explanation, but then he illustrates it. And and in his illustration, he actually draws out what the meaning is, because I've seen plenty of people take, I think, a a, a misguided application of this where, nope, I can't ever have a position of leadership. I can't ever have a position of success. I can't ever have people praise me. That's not the point. The point is, is revealed in the illustration. Look at verse 36. He took a child. Now, in our society, that's not a big deal, right? I mean, I I see some dads right now that are holding children. That's awesome. And if you were to look back, don't look back now because it would embarrass them and it would distract you. But we look at that and we all go, oh. And our society is so focused on children. In fact, we're going into a season of the year when children are the focus, aren't we? I've already heard news articles, read news articles, and heard news uh, accounts where they're saying, listen, parents, if you want to be the hero of your kids, you've got to start shopping now because of shipping. I mean, you drive past ball fields during the summer, and at 8 o'clock in the morning on Sundays, there are practices, there are games, there are tournaments. Our society and our culture elevates children. Parents will make decisions on jobs based on whether or not they can give children more than what they had when they were growing up. It was a very different society back then. Children were dead weight. Children could distract you from positions of honor. And so Jesus, as the rabbi, as the son of man, does something very countercultural. And look at what it says. He took a child and put him in the midst of them. And not only that, it says taking him in his arms, which in the original, this is, it's a, it's a physical expression of affection. I had a guy come up to me a few weeks ago and say, Pastor, where, where is there in Scripture anything that reveals the humanity of Jesus? I don't see a whole lot of that, he said. Here you go. Watch the chosen. The chosen does an amazing job taking passages like us and, and drawing out the human compassionate side. Jesus pulled that child up to him and embraced him. And he said this, whoever receives one such child in my name, beloved, circle that, would you please? That is the essence of his point. Is that the focus of even bringing a child to him is to exalt Christ. And what Jesus is not saying here is that everyone at Ascend Church must now get involved in kids ministry, although we would love that. What Jesus is saying is that this child is an illustration of a greater point, and that is that when I see other believers, when I see other followers of Jesus Christ, I see them as my opportunity to advance them toward Christ, not their opportunity to advance me. And my question for you this morning is, when you walked in here, as you passed other image bearers, as you passed other disciples of Jesus Christ, how did you view them? 
As you placed your order at the cafe, how did you view those people that were helping you? As you watched the people on the stage, as you're listening to the bald guy preach, what are your expectations? Jesus is saying here, whoever has a mindset that my interactions with other believers are for the purpose of Christ's name, not my advancement, receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me, and in our modern vernacular, affirms that they are truly an ambassador of God. Beloved, there are a lot of different pathways to status in our society. But here's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. When your primary motivation is contributing to the progress of discipleship in the lives of others, you are on the pathway to true status. So husband, as you make decisions about what job to take, parents, as you make decisions about where to move and put your kids in a place of education, Single person, when you decide whether or not you are going to date someone, and it goes on and on and on, when you see as your primary motivation, you're contributing to their path and pursuit of Christ, now you are on the pathway of true status. Number three, we also need to exchange sources of status. Exchange sources of status. Verse 38 begins a paragraph that seems like it's out of place. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. It seems like it's out of place. It's almost as though John didn't even listen to what Jesus had just taught him. Now, we don't know if this was immediately after the teaching. We don't know if it was still in the house. But the bottom line is this, is that John's question included his own answer. Jesus focuses on that, and he says, do not stop him. Do not stop him. What is your identity of status? When I was growing up, I went to a small Christian school. We, we thought we were a lot bigger than what we were. It was small. But, but our Christian school dominated everywhere. Basketball, baseball, Soccer, if cheerleading is a sport, we'll throw in cheerleading. <laughs> Choirs, bands, science projects, it didn't matter. Debate. I would go up to the registration table at the tournament. They would say, what's your name, Jeff Terrell? What's your school? Tri-City Christian. School doesn't exist anymore. That's a whole other story. But that was an expression of when I went to these places, my, my status was my school. My status was what my school had accomplished. And if we're not careful, we do this in our lives without even knowing it. How about Americans, you who have traveled abroad? I remember I had to constantly evaluate this as I traveled to Romania for the first time, appreciating their culture, appreciating their food, appreciating their language, and, and instead of saying, well, you need to be like mine. But we can do the same thing as Christians, can't we? I go to a sin church. I'm a Baptist. I read John MacArthur. I listen to Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. Friend, our source of status is revealed right here in the text. John says the concern that they had, look at the end of verse 38, is that this man was not following, what's the next word? Would you look at it in the text? 
Following whom? Us. See, there's the contrast of the sources, isn't there? He had just said where the true source is. It is in my name. But John says our concern is he's not one of us. He's not following us. He's not a tri-city crusader. There's a misunderstanding of the source of status. Jesus focuses on the source of status. Look at he says, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward able to speak evil of me. He then says, essentially, in the next phrase, that look, the whole status of you as a 12 is me, and the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say, verse 41, whoever gives to you a cup of water to drink, why? Because you belong to Christ. It's Christ. It's Christ. It's Christ. And friend, when we can get to the place where we actually own this, then we are able to see the amazing statement that follows in verse 41. This person who focuses on Christ in the efforts that they have toward you will by no means, what does it say? Lose his reward. Now, reward is important. I often will not complete a survey unless somebody's going to give me a cash e-gift card. Han Solo was driven by reward. His whole pursuit of Princess Leia was so he could get a reward. And friend, I think if we're not careful in the Christian life, we can subtly have this expectation that the reward is somehow going to be crowns, it's somehow going to be a gold-plated path, it's somehow going to be the crystal sea or a mansion. But beloved, the reward is dwelling. I would encourage you to write that down. From the beginning of creation... The expectation was that God would dwell with his people and they were to expand that dwelling to the corners of the world. God gave Noah a second chance after the flood and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What? With my dwelling, with my people. When the world failed in that, in Genesis 10 and 11, God scattered them and put his affections on one ethnic people and said, I will dwell with you in the tabernacle. I will dwell with you in the temple. And when Israel rejected Christ, then Jesus said, okay, I'm going to continue my plan to dwell with my people, and I'm going to do that with the church. And he dwells in you in his Holy Spirit. But that isn't the end game. The end game is Revelation 21.3, that he will dwell with us in the new Jerusalem where there is no need for sun, no need for moon, no need for stars, because Christ is dwelling with us. Come, Lord Jesus. And friend, we get to a place where that becomes our passion, that becomes our focus for reward, and then we are able to handle the expectations, the pathways, because we have the right source of status in our lives. You can write this down. We don't have time to dig into it. But Exodus 33, 14 through 16, Moses asked the Lord, will you go with us? Is it not in your presence being with us that we are a unique people? If you will not go with us, 
then we don't want to go? Friend, is that what you're asking when it comes to the decisions of your life? God, I don't want to go through a life of health unless you go with me. And if you lead with a life of cancer, then that's what I choose. Is that where we are? I'm not there yet. But this is intended to cause us to move our needle. It's intended to cause us to repent of any sin that is keeping us from that. It's intended to grow our delight in Christ so we can move toward that. But in order to have true status, we must exchange our sources of status. And friend, when we get to this place now, if you can own this and understand this, you are ready for one of the most cutting and convicting paragraphs in all Scripture. Number four, we must also exchange measures of status. Jesus says in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones, again, he's not talking about a child below a certain age. He's talking about a a follower of Jesus Christ. And there you see, who believe in me. But there's going to be a phrase that you're going to see repeated four times that becomes the focal point of what Jesus is saying to sin. I'd love to have seen uh, uh, more words in that phrase to more, I think, accurately reflect what Jesus was saying. It isn't necessarily exclusive to a believer sinning. It's ultimately derailing them from their progression to being like Christ. I'll hopefully unpack that more clearly. But Jesus says four times if a Believer sins, if you contribute to a believer stumbling, if something in your life contributes to you stumbling, you are to take serious measures. In fact, look at what it says in verse 42. It would be better for him that a great millstone, these were large stones that were put around a, a donkey, that a donkey would actually pull around on this big stone that would allow him to be able to mill grain. And basically, if you would put this around your neck and be dropped into the sea, there was no coming back. And Jesus is saying is that if your life and the decisions you make and the motivation of your heart is somehow derailing someone in their progression of becoming more like Christ and you don't care and you don't evaluate that and you don't engage with that, then metaphorically speaking, it would be better that you no longer live. It's that serious. Then look what it says if, the, if your own hand causes you to be derailed. The hand in the ancient world was a basic instrument for accomplishing one's purpose. And that's important, friend, to understand what Jesus is saying. He's not saying literally cut off your hand, although some people have actually applied that. He says if your hand is contributing to derailing you from progressing to be like Christ, cut it off. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, and and the verb here is the same verb that's found in Jonah 1 and 2 of throwing Jonah overboard and the fish spitting Noah out. It's get rid of it. Get rid of the source in your life that is moving you away from progressing to be more like Christ. Practically speaking, I think that was illustrated well from the book that we're studying as a small group. It's called Entrusted with a Child's Heart. The, the author said that she and her husband were counseling a, a young couple. The man was a businessman. The, the woman had concern with his travel. He traveled a lot. 
And in his traveling, he would travel with uh, female co-workers. He would meet with female clients. And her, his wife was struggling with that. And as they discussed this, there was like, you don't trust me. Well, uh, I shouldn't have to ask you for this. And none of you have ever been through something like that, right? And it was back and forth. And they got to a place where he wasn't budging. She wasn't budging. And they sat down with this couple to receive counseling. And, and they walked them through what is God's design for marriage? What is God's purpose in the home? It begins with asking that question. And as the husband began to process this, he realized that woman is to be my treasure because Christ is my treasure. And if in this stage and season of life it is so concerning to her that she's asking me to put guardrails in my life, asking me to pull back my, my travel rhythm, then I am willing to do that because of Christ's treasure that he has put in my life. And he did that. No more riding with a woman by herself. No more eating meals with a woman by themselves, whether client or a coworker cutting back the rhythm of travel, and this led to effects on his job. In fact, one female coworker in particular was so offended by this, she wrote a letter to HR. That would not be something any of us would want. But friend, the illustration is intended to hammer home a principle. It is not that this is what the word is prescribing in each one of your lives. It is not that there is anything inherently sinful with having a busy travel schedule. It is not necessarily that there's anything inherently sinful by going out to dinner with a female coworker. But here's the question is, does that advance and progress you toward Christ, your spouse toward Christ, and even that female coworker? And if that isn't the beginning of your evaluation, and it's somehow, well, this is what my job requires. This is somehow what allows me to be able to provide for my family. This is somehow what enables me to be able to live in Johnson County. And that's where you begin that what Jesus is saying is sometimes you have to cut it off. In fact, listen to this quote. Any areas of our life that is fanning the flame of personal advancement, pride, or identity other than Christ sometimes needs to be cut off. And that's why Jesus is going to parts of the body that are so essential. If you lose your hand, it will change how you live. If you lose your foot, if you lose an eye, it will change how you live. But sometimes the gospel requires that. Sometimes areas of our lives that we recognize as essential, we don't even realize this, but they are derailing us. They are derailing others from Christ being preeminent in our families and in our lives. And Jesus is asking the disciples this question, and he's asking us today, what is the measure of status? He said, it's better that you go through life being one-eyed having one foot, having one hand, than to have both in a life of comfort in this life and find that in eternity you're in hell. Many of you have a footnote in your Bibles that this is represent, or re referring to a place called Gehenna. It was a valley just outside of Jerusalem that they had designated as the garbage pile. 
And they were constantly burning garbage. And so there was this imagery of flames 24 hours a day. And it was associated by the time of Jesus with the eternal judgment that God promises for those who have not been covered by Christ's righteousness. And friend, if you can get to a place where another quote I'll ask the team to put on the screen, where you realize that sometimes what appears to be essential to our lives must be ripped away if it is derailing us from gospel progress or the gospel progress of others, then we are in a position to understand what Jesus is saying when he talks about fire and salt. Because when I read this the first time, were you like me when I had to study this? And I'm like, I don't even know what he's saying. I mean, we're not supposed to want fire, but then verse 49 says, everyone is going to be salted with fire, and then salt is good. What in the world is he talking about? Well, let me read a quote. This is how I'm summarizing this entire passage that I'm gonna ask the team to put on the screen. Would you please follow along? Because I think this summarizes it and hopefully gets us to a place where we can begin to reflect before communion. Jesus is saying to his disciples, listen, my dear disciples, my twelve. Following me means owning the kind of thinking about self and others expected of citizens of my kingdom. That means your devotion to me is so treasured and motivating that your evaluation of others is more about how can you advance their trajectory toward Christ than what they can do for you. If the motivation is more about your advancement of status, then you may actually be revealing you are not my disciple. So take steps, steps of refining, steps of cutting off, steps of throwing overboard, which can mean pain and suffering, just like the fire that refines. Make sure that you're refining and throwing overboard areas of your life that may seem essential or important because it is better to take these steps of refining than to end up choosing comfort and status in this life only to experience the fire that is unquenchable and never-ending with eternal judgment. Take this instruction and let it be a source of peace for your life as you experience suffering and personal refining. And let it be the lens through which you see others.